And now, Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. Good evening. Thank you for tuning in to Exposure. I'm Abby Newton. It's a Tuesday before Thanksgiving, and campus is becoming less and less populated as we near the holiday. Now, I've been thinking about that beautiful Thanksgiving meal with all of my family around a big dining room table for quite some time now. But this morning, I started wondering what the first Thanksgiving must have looked like. And I did some research, and here's what I found. The History Channel reports that the Plymouth colonists came to the land in September of 1620 by way of the Mayflower. Now, the first Thanksgiving was in 1621, after the colonists had their first successful harvest, thanks much to the Wampanoag Indians. The meal was actually a three-day feast with the Indians and the colonists. Now, Governor William Bradford of the colonists had four of his men hunt birds for the meal, and the Indians brought five deer. Those birds and deer were shared among 53 colonists and 90 Wampanoag Indians. Now, the day did not become a holiday until 1863, when Abraham Lincoln said Thanksgiving Day should be held each November. The catch? He actually proclaimed this during the Civil War. Now, today, close to 46 million turkeys are eaten at Thanksgiving each year, and about 88% of Americans consume these turkeys. Now, there's not a solidified answer as to why we eat turkey, but it is thought that it might have been popularized by Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, which was published in 1843. Now, to continue our talk about the holiday, our very own Santiago Montiel found out how international students on campus plan to celebrate Thanksgiving. For me, it was a fresh start. I left the warm weather, the big city, the pollution, the smells, the sounds, and the sights of my home, Mexico City, to come to Michigan. Almost 7,000 students have made the same choice and left their countries to come to MSU. Every international student has his or her own story. There is a different reason why they chose MSU. There are different reasons as to why they study abroad. And there are challenges for all of us. This includes things like the weather and the language, but for me, it also represents a chance to learn and embrace another world. Peter Briggs, director of the Office for International Students and Scholars, highlighted the importance of foreign students in the MSU community. So this is the economic contribution. So you pay tuition, and then while you're here, you know, you buy a computer, you buy a cell phone, you go to some movies, you go out to dinner. How much do you spend a year? How much is the economic contribution? Briggs says that not only do they increase cultural awareness, but there are also financial benefits to hosting them. Javier Iglesias, an exchange student from Spain, is spending his last few weeks in East Lansing. Mi es Javier. Uh, He'll be going back España. to Spain after this Tengo semester ends, completing his third study abroad program in six years. He says that the main reason he goes abroad is to improve his English and meet other cultures. We don't have enough time to completely adapt here. Mm -hmm. By the way, it's not that difficult. Iglesias, a student from the University of Huelva, adds that he has enjoyed his stay in Michigan, but is ready to go back to Spain. Maria Pichardo, a sophomore from the Dominican Republic, says she has adapted pretty well, but had some difficulties with her American friends. I, at the beginning it was hard because 
they have different culture and everything. And they didn't like a lot when we spoke Spanish, like in front of them. They hated that and because we're so loud. Lennart Davilo is a junior exchange student from Germany. Davilo says he's having a great time, but adds that most of his friends are international students because they are part of the same program. Hello, ich bin Lennart aus Deutschland. Um, well, first thing is that we all, we already had the international students, and then it's always difficult to get into into yeah those predefined groups of of American friends. For the fall 2012 semester, the international student population at MSU grew by 12 percent. This, according to MSU's Office of International Students and Scholars, according to the Open Doors report on international educational exchange. For the 2012-2013 school year, over 800,000 international students studied in the United States, 7% more from the 2011-2012 school year. It's easy to think of international students as just a number, but the experiences they go through are all unique and varied. Thanksgiving is a chance to embrace an important part of American culture. Seeing as it is an exclusively American holiday, it's a first time celebrating for many international students. However, for many of these students, Thanksgiving is too short of a break to go back home, and so they have to make other plans. Pichardo says that she and other five Dominican friends will be spending Thanksgiving in Cincinnati, Ohio with her aunt. My family, back in the yard, we always have a dinner, a Thanksgiving dinner, even though it's more Americanized, but we always have a dinner, and like everyone says why they're, like, what they're thankful for. So it's not just because I'm here. Like I've done it every time, every year. Iglesias will be spending the break at his roommate's house in Greenville, Michigan. So it's a great opportunity to enjoy like the real Thanksgiving with his family and stuff. It's like for us, it's like kind of a stereotypes with the turkey, uh, and now I'm gonna see it like for the first hand. Dabolo will also spend the holiday at a friend's house in Indianapolis. It's probably the American experience that you can get here. So that's yeah, that's awesome. As for me. I'll also be spending Thanksgiving with a friend from Michigan. I wish I was going home, but I'll be seeing my family for winter break, so I'm looking forward to this weekend. For Impact News, I'm Santiago Montiel. Tonight on Exposure, we will be speaking about more than just Thanksgiving in Turkey, however. We will be exploring Krav Maga, an Israeli fighting technique that is now at Michigan State University. I will also discuss the cyclotron. It's not a superhero, but a particle accelerator. Now later on the show, we explore some research about the glass ceiling and talk about Homelessness Week. But first, let's talk about that Israeli fighting technique. Now Krav Maga is a self-defense system developed in Israel and Hungary. It takes different moves and skills from boxing, Wing Chun, Judo, and wrestling to create realistic fight training. Now, in addition, Krav Maga incorporates a philosophy emphasizing threat neutralization and aggression. There's actually a Krav Maga training center here at Michigan State. The slogan is, he who desires peace prepares for war. In this preparation, I spoke with two Krav Maga instructors and one of their students about the practice. We welcome instructor Cedric Ford and Justin Moore and our very own Carmen Scruggs to the studio. 
how would you two, as instructors of the technique and the dynamic fighting, would describe it? Um, well, I would say that uh, you are correct in saying that we do do, we, well, we do do a lot of uh, counter moves mm -hmm. with our attacks, um, with, with blocking, we do striking with blocking and things like that. So it is very, uh, can be aggressive, it may look aggressive, but the bottom line is at the, at the end of the day, we want you to go home safe. Mm -hmm. Anything to add? It's, it's really a, a unique system in the fact that it's based on natural instincts and anybody can do it. Uh, in Israel, everyone serves in the military, uh, male or female, um, at the age of 18 if you're a citizen. Uh, they, uh, you go into the military and you serve your mandatory time. Um, so they had to make a system that was efficient for people to do uh, in a very short amount of time. So they based a lot of the techniques and movements off of natural instincts um, and then built on those and it had to be learned in a short amount of time and retained uh, quickly. So um, very natural movements, very quick, um, and very easy for everybody to be able to do. Um, it couldn't just be for the biggest guys out there or uh, those people that had uh, very good coordination. It had to be able to be done by everybody. And how did it make its way to Michigan State University? Um, well, initially, uh, we started doing this uh, in smaller groups, mm -hmm. and um, we started offering it to the public, and it's just grown over time in the area. And again, how long have you been doing this and operating it? Um, I've been involved in martial arts for years mm -hmm. since I was a kid. Uh, I started researching, and I found Krav Maga about uh, 10 years ago, and um, started uh, reading books and, and watching it and studying it, and then I started training it in a local school. Um, and then grew upon that, and I, I advanced through it and went through instructor program from there. And I'm kind of along the same line. I've been doing uh, martial arts and wrestling ever since I was young. And then about six years ago, um, I, Justin kind of wrote me into it. <laughs> and uh, ever since then, I've been hooked, and it, it, it's great. It's something that I truly love, I have a passion for. And why did you get involved with it? For you, it said it started at a young age, but what kind of sparked that interest to begin the study and the understanding of martial arts and then Krav Maga? Um, just the whole martial arts thing, knowing how to uh, defend yourself and knowing how to uh, carry yourself is important, I think, in confidence in, in anybody. Um, and so that kind of draws you to that as a kid. Um, and then the, the Krav Maga aspect was, is, is through my studies through martial arts, I found that um, it takes years and years and years to master that. And in this current day and age, of you know, we've, we don't have as much time available to us because we're always busy and um, the technology and thing. We want things that happen quicker. So... Uh, Krav Maga had that appeal to it. I started researching that, you know, that you can learn this quick, it's effective, and you can walk away with techniques. Like in an hour class, you'll walk away with, uh, you know, a half dozen things and skills that you can walk out with, whereas in traditional martial arts, you may only walk away with one thing, mm -hmm. you know, in an hour class. Wow. And for you? Uh, just to go along with the whole confidence thing, um, we teach more than just self-defense. We teach, mm -hmm. you know, self-awareness, being being. Uh, aware of your surroundings you know if people are more aware of their surroundings you know when you're walking through a dark parking lot late at night by yourself and you scan the parking lot before you you know exit the building before you get to your car or you look in your back seat of your car before you get in because you never know what could happen you mm -hmm. never know who could be out there and like Justin said in this day and age it, it's hard it's hard to uh, you know be on your toes 24 7 but you know what we offer is we offer that that mental awareness mm -hmm. and just having that ability to to be uh, to be able to recognize what's going on around you. And in the studio, we also have Carmen Scruggs, our very own impactor, and she took a class and has been exposed to Krav Maga. So to you, what was your experience like and your perspective of the martial art? Well, I took it 
back in Memphis, mm -hmm. that's where I first got interested, for about six weeks. And I know you need to take it for, what, six months to really get a basic level approach? Yeah, give or take. A lot of it depends on, on the student, but yeah, about six months is usually normal. Right. And But for the six weeks that I could do it, uh, it's just really great. It's, like they said, it really helps with your confidence. Mm -hmm. Like, you're going to be able to know what you do if you get in a situation. And um, that's very comforting to know. And then also just for like a great workout. Not really. It relieves a lot of stress. You know, I really like kickboxing, but what's really cool about Krav Maga is it incorporates a lot more self-defense. So it's like you're learning these real life moves that you can use and you're also getting really good workout. Hmm. So for the first class, if I was a new student, what would you introduce me to? Or I guess what would I experience during that first lesson of that one hour? Uh, for the first lesson, we would teach you everything from um, a proper fighting stance, mm -hmm. uh, proper way to punch without hurting yourself, and to be more effective in, in your fighting. Um, a lot of combatives, punching, strikes, elbows, kicks. Um, the, the lower levels, like in level one, you're going to learn a lot of combatives. And mm -hmm. You're going to learn how to apply them properly without hurting yourself. And to get a little taste, how, what is a proper punch? How would I do that? Um, rolling your fingers up, um, mm -hmm. proper placement of the thumb, uh, and then proper striking with the knuckles. Um, just your typical straight punch, keeping the hand straight up and down, um, and good body rotation. Okay. You know, you got to have that good foundation of your stance, of your feet, um, and striking straight out and everything in the bone structure in good alignment to have a good strong punch. And with your experience, do you feel that more women are drawn to Krav Maga or men, or a little bit of both? Well, we're hoping to get to get uh, a little bit of both. Right now, our classes are, are a little bit um, one-sided towards the male half, but we are getting mm. a lot more females in there, uh, which is which is great because we do offer uh, rape aggression programs mm. for women. So if you know any women want to have their friends come in, or we can even do private seminars for them um, for um, any type of women organizations or anything like that, we do offer that as well. So if, if you are a female and you are kind of leery about coming in and being around a, a lot of guys, it's okay, you can come in, we'll take care of you. But if you still have that fear, you can uh, you know, contact us and we can set up a seminar, a private seminar, private classes, anything to help you out. So you don't usually partner the tallest guy with the smallest girl? In... <laughs> well, it, well it's, it's important to train with different, with that's, different that's body structures and body types. Just, you know, because, you know, I'm... I'm 6'2", 240 pounds, my, the person I'm fighting could be 5'8", could be 6'8". It mm -hmm. doesn't, you know, you never know. Mm -hmm. So you just have to get used to fighting and being around different body types. Sure. I think females are, are quite often intimidated to come mm -hmm. into something that's such a, an aggressive um, sport or training atmosphere like that. Um, but the thing about it is once they come in, they like it and enjoy it. They realize it's not... Uh, that type of atmosphere. That's not what we try to, to promote. I mean, it is an aggressive thing, but uh, we make it comfortable for the females that come in and train. Um, so walking in, you can kind of see the look on their face by the time they leave. They're smiling and excited. You know, they had a good workout and a good training session and learned a lot of valuable information. Um, so I think a one-hour session totally makes them comfortable in, in the fact of this isn't what I thought it was when I just came into it. So. And Carmen, can you attest to that? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I've been to classes where I've had to be paired with men or women and, you know, it is it is good getting used to the body type because a woman might attack me. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But if she does, I'm going to know what to expect and how to handle it. Right. Wow. 
Well, again, just one last thing. Um, can you just stress the importance that you feel that people, especially on college campus, are exposed to different teachings and learnings like that you offer? Um, yeah, we we offer a lot in the, the aspect of the safety. So mm-hmm. you're walking along, your awareness, avoidance. So we'll try to avoid those situations as much as possible that mm-hmm. might be dangerous. Um, we see a lot of distractions, especially with the technology age. People are, you know, have headsets in or on their iPod or on their phone or texting or tablets or whatever it may be or uh, reading books because they're studying and they're not aware of all their surroundings. So we try to avoid that because you win 100% of those confrontations that you're not in. If you can avoid it all together, you've won that situation. Hmm. And, and that's what we really try to promote. But there are comes those times where, uh, you know, someone may engage you. Um, there's, a, there's a huge... Uh, thing going around right now called knock them out and people come up and approach and and punch somebody and try to knock them out and then they run off and it's a game that they're playing um so that may come a situation where that happens or you may be robbed you know and we always advocate obviously giving up property if somebody wants that we don't we don't want you to to fight back to that person but at some point in time you have to make the distinguishing uh fact of whether the person wants property or they want you Mm -hmm. and if they want you then we don't want you to just give in we want you to fight back and to to save yourself and and not be taken to a secondary location and something bad happened to you there so we give you those skills to safely do that hopefully and anything else you'd like to add yeah we uh just to piggyback off what justin said we do um a lot of the training with weapons whether it be a blunt object cutting instrument knives uh guns we do we train for multiple attackers how to survive multiple multiple attackers uh, in, in those kind of situations and scenarios. And again, you're gonna have to you know, work your way up through the, the, uh, mm-hmm. the levels. We don't have a belt system. Um, we'd have five levels and every level you're gonna learn something different. We're gonna add new things. We're gonna add weapons. We're gonna add multiple attackers. We're gonna you know, uh, take you outside of the studio because not everything's done in the studio. In a real life fight, you're not gonna be in the studio or in the dojo you know, practicing techniques with a partner. You're gonna, be, you're gonna be fighting someone that really wants to hurt you you know, deprive you of property mm-hmm. or, like Justin said, kidnap you, do whatever. So we do we do um, some training outside in the parking lot because that's where you could be. You could be next to a car. You could be, you know, trip over a curb or whatever. Um, so those are some of the things that we try to incorporate into our program to make it as realistic as possible for our students. Okay. Well, great. Well, thank you very much. This is Spartan Krav Maga. We really appreciate your time, and we look forward to watching this progress and the popularity increase, I think. So thank well, you. Thanks for having us. Mm-hmm. Thank you for having us. Optimus Prime, Megatron, and Cyclotron? 
No, the cyclotron is not a large transformer, but a particle accelerator that is housed at Michigan State University. Now, MSU is the only place in the world with such an object. The National Superconducting Cyclotron Laboratory is leading the world in isotope research and nuclear science education. Nuclear physics research began at Michigan State in 1958, and the university has since grown to lead the field. In addition to the cyclotron, the F-Rib will soon be coming to campus. We invited Michigan State University physics professor Brad Sherrill to the studio to explain to us what exactly the cyclotron does and the exciting times ahead for nuclear physics at Michigan State University. So how would you describe the cyclotron in perhaps a passerby language so all of us who don't have a nuclear physics degree can understand? Actually, I never thought of it as a superhero, but, <laughs> but it does have special powers. Excellent. We've got a superhero so, on campus then. Um, so the, the cyclotron, it's a, um, it's a research laboratory. Um, it has in it a, a particle accelerator. That's one of its superpowers. And the particle accelerator we use to speed up atoms to really high speed, and then we smash them. So sometimes you hear people talk about the cyclotron as an atom smasher. And sure enough, that's what it does. Um, what we do with it, though, is you might think you smash atoms to figure out what's inside. We sort of know what's inside now, but now actually what we do is we smash atoms to make other atoms, really interesting ones. Um, and we can make atoms, very special kinds of atoms. Um, these are called isotopes that nowhere else in the world can make. And so researchers from all over come uh, to Michigan State University because we're really the best place at making these unusual atoms. We have one of the most powerful particle accelerators for this sort of research. And we make the atoms, people come, they do their research. Um, and um, like, for example, someone might want a very heavy uh, form of magnesium. So we can make that where nobody else can. So to really compare it to something and to compare the power of making an atom or making isotopes, is there a comparison we can make saying, you know, it goes this fast or it's this strong for um, people you know, to really understand how much power is in the cyclotron superhero? Well, um, sometimes we talk about particle accelerators in terms of watts. So, mm -hmm. yeah, there is kind of a way to think about it. Like, you know, there's 100-watt light bulbs mm -hmm. or 10-watt uh, light bulbs. Now, to accelerate a lot of particles, it's, it's a hard thing to do. But the cyclotron, Michigan State's pretty good at accelerating a lot of them. And the more you accelerate, the more watts you get. And so right now, our accelerator is about 1,000 watts of power in the beam. And it doesn't sound like a lot, but it's uh, relative to everywhere else in the world. It's a lot. Um, and um, the current cyclotron makes about 1,000 watts. But um, we're also building a new project called FRIB. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe some people have heard about. And uh, it's really exciting because it really increases our power. So we go from 1,000 watts to... Uh, uh, 400,000 watts of beam power. Quite the so, exponential growth you have so, over there. <laughs> so it's like a radio station reaching uh, all across the country compared to just the local neighborhood. Would you like to partner, perhaps? Yes, right. <laughs> like a partnership. You can, help, you can help us send isotopes all over. Excellent. We're happy to do so. Um, now, also, why are you drawn to such an activity of the physics and of creating isotopes? What's so exciting about it? Well, uh, for one thing, the, these unusual isotopes uh, are really important for understanding how the universe works as a whole. 
like um, stars actually have lives. They, they're born, they live their normal life, and then they get to the end of their lives and they do things. Uh, some of them explode. And uh, um, to, to understand that, um, you have to know the properties of all the atoms and the nuclei that um, are in those stars. Mm -hmm. And it turns out the unusual isotopes um, that we can't normally find on Earth, but they exist in these stars, we have to know their properties to understand what the stars will do. And, and so it's kind of cool that you can work in a laboratory here on campus and, and study some of the smallest things, atoms and m new isotopes, but you're learning about the biggest things in the universe, mm -hmm. stars and um, why stars are exploding and how the Milky Way formed and it evolved over time. Okay, so that, that's, that's one of the cool things. Yeah. Um, but uh, another kind of cool thing is these unusual isotopes get used in a lot of other applications. They get, probably most people don't know, but there's actually another cyclotron on MSU campus in radiology. And that cyclotron, um, it also makes unusual isotopes, but they use those isotopes uh, to diagnose cancer. So these are, um, I, the isotopes they make actually emit antimatter. Um, Kind of like angels and demons, if, you, <laughs> if you're familiar with that book. Mm -hmm. But n not they don't make a lot of antimatter. But the isotopes they make um, are radioactive, and they emit antimatter. And you can detect where that their, their uh, positrons are called. You can detect where in the body those positrons were emitted. And so the, what they do with their isotopes is they um, put them in a special form, and you can inject them, and then they go preferentially the cancer tumor, so you can tell them where cancer is in the body. That's called positron emission tomography, um, and uh, that's an exciting application. And we're hoping uh, that we will have new applications like that when mm -hmm. we get the new EFRIB facility And when is that going to be finished? Uh, 2020. That's right. What a good year, <laughs> 2020. <laughs> and for you, um, you know, what do you hope, I guess, as a professor and as well as a researcher at Michigan State, say in 2030, what do you hope that the AFRIB as well as the um, or AFRIB as well as the cyclotron bring to this campus and I guess to the world because it is so rare to have such on your campus or in her proximity. Well, this will be a one of a kind facility in the world. Mm -hmm. Actually, the current cyclotron is is really a one of a kind facility. Like I was saying, people from all over the world come to Michigan State because we're the best place to get the unusual atoms or, or isotopes uh, that they can't get anywhere else. And EFRIB will be even much better at that, and it really will be the kind of the, the best place for, uh, for the kind of research that lots of people will want to do. And that's exciting. It's exciting to make uh, MSU one, number one in nuclear physics. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and um, But it will... It brings a lot of smart people here um, to, to do their research, um, uh, but it also will make um, other departments on campus uh, have capability that other places don't have. For example, if, if someone wants to create a new diagnostic tool for studying how cells work or something and, and an unusual isotope can be helpful there, then it'll be available to EFRIB and it won't be available anywhere else. So we're, we're hoping very much that other departments on campus can benefit by having the proximity of this kind of unique research tool. Um, and, and in that, um, I hope, you know, after 10 years of operating, actually, I hope that, um, and I, I expect that we will actually have 
better ways to diagnose cancer. And kind of exciting, it looks like with some of these isotopes, maybe there's even ways to better treat cancer. Because if you can um, send a particular molecule in to find the cancer, maybe you can attach also a particular isotope in it that will then kill the cancer when it gets there. And I think um, there are exciting ideas on how to do that. And one of the things that's missing right now is just having enough of those isotopes mm -hmm. um, to make the treatment, cancer treatment, along with the diagnosis. And that looks like it will be a possibility. Um, we'll see. Um, uh, we, nothing, nothing often in research is certain, but <laughs> it looks pretty exciting. That's the fun of it, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, my last question for you is what has been one of your most exciting maybe findings or just experiences working with a cyclotron? Well, there's a lot. <laughs> so it's um, one of these things that's hard to pick just one. A few years ago, maybe 15 or so, um, there was a, a people made a, a actually it was a government committee made a list of the sort of important things that should happen in nuclear physics. And I don't remember if it was number five or number six, but one of these things on the list was figuring out um, what the heaviest isotopes of aluminum and magnesium might be. Now, that might sound like a silly thing to care about, but, but it really is a test of our understanding of what holds the nucleus together. And that's why they said this is important, because it's an important test of do we understand the forces at work in, in atoms. And, um, and so that was kind of a challenge. And so... Um, we did it. Um, the, we were the first to sort of find the heaviest uh, uh, form of magnesium, the heaviest isotope of magnesium, and that was in 2007. So um, that was a, that was kind of a big success, yeah. but but one of many. Mm -hmm. um, it's also cool to be uh, working with these isotopes and measuring a property of an isotope and realize, uh, like, oh my gosh, I you know I understand something about a star that nobody understood before. Uh, and anyway, it, it, there are many things like that. Mm -hmm. Well, congratulations so far. It sounds like you're doing excellent work, and I think there's a lot more to come. So we'll be sure to watch out for that, and we're very excited here. One, one of the really exciting things about a new research facility like we have in, this, mm -hmm. in the current Psychotron, the future facility, EFRIB, is there are always surprises. And uh, when anyone has a new telescope and you look for something new in the heavens, they're always finding things that are unexpected. Mm -hmm. And I think the same works for atoms. I believe as we get after running and we start looking, those things that we expected to find uh, are actually, we're going to find lots of surprises in there. And so it'll be fun. It'll be fun to be around that. And I hope that you know, we have a chance to tell as many people mm -hmm. as possible, like through radio shows like sure. this, um, about all the exciting things that are happening. Well, what a cool job you have, I must say. <laughs> and what a cool job you have, I must say. <laughs> well, thank you. Again, thank you very much. It's Professor Cheryl with the Cyclotron. My pleasure. Thank you. November is National Adoption Month. It is to raise awareness for the thousands of children in foster care awaiting adoption. Impact's Miguel Martinez delved into the story and has it for us today. Foster care and adoption are both very important issues in our community, 
but unfortunately, there are also issues which are often overlooked by many. In Michigan, approximately 14,000 children are in the foster care system at any given time, according to the Department of Human Services. And more than 3,000 children are waiting for permanent homes, as stated on the Michigan Adoption Resource Exchange website. In order to raise awareness and support for children in the foster care system, groups all around the Greater Lansing area have been working hard on a variety of events. St. Vincent Catholic Charities is one of these groups putting on events for both the children and the public. Adoption recruiter for the organization, Whitney Banks, spoke with us regarding the event they held on Sunday, November 10th, featuring artwork from nine of their very own young artists. Um, the event that's going on tomorrow is our, um, our art exhibit that we hold each year. This year we chose Roots, and it's because of National um, Adoption Month and in honor of Native American Month, we are hosting our event at Nokomis Learning Center. One of the artists featured was 15-year-old Trayvon Reynolds. Trayvon made a poster highlighting his interest and explaining his roots. Um, I put on um, my poster that I like to play football. I'm black. I'm, I like to play football. Uh, my roots are very important. Another event put on by SVCC was a book signing by national author Rhonda Rorda at Schuler's Books on Monday, November 18th. After the event, in which Rorda shared her experience as a child of color adopted into a white family, she spoke with Impact regarding National Adoption Month. Well, I think that um, it's wonderful that we have a month to celebrate adoption. I think it's a it's a important time to recognize um, that children deserve a wonderful, vibrant future. I think it's a wonderful time to celebrate parents who are doing some really good work. While Rhoda expressed her belief that adoption was an incredible way to build a family, she also stated that with adoption comes the added responsibility of broadening the family's horizons. I think it's very important to know why you're adopting a child and if the child is special needs, if the child is an older child, if a child comes from a different background, it's very important to know about that um, background, that culture, that situation, and um, to do all of the training that is required. On top of the cultural responsibility also comes a bit of paperwork, according to the adoption program manager, Kathy Yates. It's, it's a little bit of paperwork and process to navigate. There's, there's quite a few requirements that um, foster families have to fulfill, as well as adoptive families. The added paperwork, as well as the more heavily documented cases and other reforms to the child welfare system, came as a result of a 2006 lawsuit against the state of Michigan, as explained by Yates. Yeah, the state of Michigan um, had a lawsuit um, filed against them by the Children's Rights Organization, which is a national organization, and it required a lot more oversight by the state in terms of policies and procedures, and so it increased a lot of paperwork. Um, but it was basically to protect, you know, the rights of children. While these reforms are implemented to protect children while they are in foster care, it seems that the struggle often gets worse when aging out of the system at 18 or 21. There are, however, increasing efforts to promote and support a college education for children that come from non-traditional homes, such as foster care and adoption. Here at Michigan State, we have the FAME program. 
The FAME program is a community program of the School of Social Work. Um, FAME stands for Fostering Academics Mentoring Excellence. And we support MSU students that were in foster care, kinship care, adopted, um, raised by a relative or guardian, or homeless. That was Andrea Martineau, coordinator and life skills coach for the FAME program. Martineau says that around 300 Michigan State students are considered eligible for the program, and they typically serve around 80 youth a year. FAME offers its students coaching and mentoring programs with professionals around the community as well as leadership opportunities through its Students Activity Board and a summer camp program geared towards helping high school students who were in the foster care system prepare for college and their future. The FAME program not only works to help Michigan State students, but the students themselves have been hard at work this month with foster youth around the community. We did a few things in November. Um, our Student Activity Board has started a partnership with um, MYOI, which stands for Michigan Youth Opportunities Initiative, and that is a group of high school age students that are in foster care. So our students planned a, um, a night of just kind of getting to know each other, playing games, and then they, they um, coordinated a game that was informational and educational about preparing for college. Michigan sees approximately 14,000 children in its foster care system at any given time. The need for support from families and groups does not end when these youth hit 18. While the Michigan child care system has undergone reform to protect the children, and there are many programs in place trying to help youth once they are out of the system, it is obvious that we as a community still have a long way to go in order to ensure an equal playing field for children everywhere. For Impact News, I'm Miguel Martinez. Thank you for joining us here on Exposure. I'm Abby Newton. Madhouse is a campus group at Michigan State University through the James Madison Residential College. It encourages free expression through a variety of ways. Impact reporter Will Meineke attended some of the meetings at Case Hall and got the full story. College, like life, is overwhelming. Or so read the opening lines of an email from Madhouse, a campus group dedicated to providing an open and safe environment for any sort of free expression, from serious to silly. Senior Ray Manella, one of the leaders of Madhouse, explains. It's a free expression club for James Madison student, faculty, and friends. So you don't have to be in James Madison. Um, where we get together once a month and uh, share prose, poems, stories, songs, any type of art you want to share. YouTube videos sometimes. At Madhouse's monthly meetings, students and a few professors gather in a casual circle to share original content, recite others' work, or even play music. Sarah Wisely, a sophomore who has been regularly attending meetings since her freshman year, performed a piece of spoken word by Sarah Kay called Hands. She used to tell me that I had beautiful hands. Told me so often, in fact, that one day I started to believe them. And 
until I asked my photographer father, hey, Daddy, could I be a hand model? To which he said, no way. For Sarah, Madhouse and the relationships she built there helped her deal with the transition from a small town high school to a big state college. I was from a really small town, class of 120 graduates. Everybody knew everyone. And when I got to campus, I was so overwhelmed. I had never been away from my parents for such an extensive period of time. And it was hard to create sort of a base of friendship because I wasn't connecting with people as well as I thought I should be. You know, you see in movies how mm -hmm. you just go in and rule the school, but it's not that way in a school with 50,000 people. So you sort of make your way by the decisions you make and the clubs you decide to join. In addition to providing students a catharsis from big school stress, Madhouse offers an opportunity to explore coursework in a way not otherwise possible in class. I mean, I've used personally Madhouse as to kind of engage differently with what I'm learning in class. That was senior Ansel Curran, who heads up Madhouse with Ray. You heard him earlier playing a tin whistle. So one time um, we were learning about Orientalism from Edward Said in my MC231 class. And I thought, wow, this is really interesting. And at the time I also had a crush on someone that I didn't actually know. So I kind of wrote a rap about Orientalism and having a crush on somebody, and that was the first rap I wrote. So it's kind of, in some ways it's an outlet, like this is not schoolwork. But it can also be a different way to engage with what you're learning in a way that's more interesting. Originally, Madhouse was created for just this purpose. Professor Dorr, who teaches at James Madison College and is famous for his meticulous note-taking, repeated retirements, and office brimming with books, created the group 19 years ago in order to demonstrate to reviewers what students with liberal arts degrees could do with the spoken word. What in the world can social science majors read aloud? Jefferson's Independence, Declaration of Independence, Paul Samuelson's textbook. What can they read aloud? And I wanted to show him what they could do with the written word. Um, we also began the program because two years earlier, Michigan State had, had eliminated speech course. And there were people in the writing program who were worried about the opportunity. If, you really, if you're in public, a college of public affairs and you want to learn how to become a good speaker, and you don't even have a course at the university, I mean, I found that to be just a crime. In addition to offering an expressive outlet and an opportunity to develop public speaking skills, Madhouse provides students with a safe and comfortable environment. Over the, over the history, I think we've been clear to say to people, this is also a social environment, and you're not going to be graded. Nobody's going to criticize you. We're going to probably try to really affirm what you're doing. Students interested in Madhouse can like the group in Facebook and attend the meetings with something to read, recite, or play, or even just be part of the audience. At the end of the day, what's important to remember is that... Words matter. Words <laughs> uttered matter. For Impact News, I'm Will Meineke.
I am Abby Newton, and you are listening to Impact Exposure. Now, last week, the Michigan Coalition Against Homelessness took time before Thanksgiving to bring awareness to issues relating to homelessness. For almost 20 years, MCAH has observed Homeless Awareness Week. I spoke with the executive director of the organization to talk about the week and its importance. Um, the organization, I think, is getting some traction, and we're seeing some uh, positive things happening in the state. But, um, you know, work is not done. There's a lot of things that need to be achieved and uh, certainly have some concerns about us uh, sliding backwards because of uh, some changes taking place with respect to funding. Oh, really? In regards to federal funding, or is that more um, well, across it, the board? It, well, it's across the board. It, it's um, something that really has started um, with state funding being cut um, over the years, and then we see that pressure then at the local level. Uh, and it's kind of a trickle-down effect. But uh, at the federal level, we've also seen uh, uh, a change in, in the funding uh, that's available. And part of that um, really is related to, to the dollars that came in as a, a result of the uh, um, stimulus package. There were additional dollars mm-hmm. that were made available, and we were able to see a lot of progress take place. But uh, more recently, with sequestration, we had seen a cut uh, and there will be continuing cuts uh, in upcoming years as a result of sequestration. So uh, we're starting to see that impact. And uh, it's not just funding for um, homeless services directly that concern us. We're also looking at um, maybe some of the things you might call ancillary uh, types of services that people are, are accessing or have been accessing that they will be um, seeing cut in the future. An example would be food stamps. Uh, mm-hmm. If a family is relying on food stamps, um, if uh, uh, the cuts go through as uh, are, are pending, we're looking at about $52 a month that a family would lose, which you know equals about $600 a year. And for some people, that's a month's rent. Right. Uh, and so we're talking about people that are starting to move again into that at-risk category uh, where there's a greater potential of people moving into homelessness. And that's the area that we're really concerned about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, going right into that, last week was uh, Homeless Awareness Week. And so, as you can see by the tone of your voice, you can tell it's very important to you. But why do you think it's very important to bring such awareness to homelessness in particular? Uh, Well, I think it's one of those things that people don't understand very well. And that's not unusual in the human service sector. There are a lot of uh, issues that the public doesn't really have a lot of insight about, uh, particularly because they don't uh, have a, a frame of reference. Um, that uh, they don't necessarily know people who have gone through the the issue of homelessness before because they may have family, friends, uh, co-workers, et cetera, who are dealing with homelessness or, or at risk of becoming homeless, but it's not something people would necessarily talk about. So it's not something that's on people's radar screen. And, and when we look at homelessness, I think the thing that concerns me most uh, often is that uh, people have a misconception about who is homeless. Uh, in the state of Michigan. And I think the average person, if you were to ask them, who is homeless? Describe the, the average homeless person in the state of Michigan will say, well, it's uh, a white, uh, middle-aged male who's a substance abuser. Uh, and that's not accurate. Um, the majority, just over 50% of uh, the homeless population in the state of Michigan last year uh, and several years before were single uh, mothers. Uh, and so you're talking one or more children in a household with an average age of seven uh, of those children. So really it, it's about the public having an awareness of, of who is actually homeless and understanding what the reasons are for homelessness. And 
you know, in the past, people would judge, you know, say, well, it's because of substance abuse, people are making decisions, it's their own fault, etc. But there are a lot of things that uh, can uh, move a person into homelessness that's outside of their control or that they have little control over. And an example of that would be losing a job, a mm-hmm. uh, house going into foreclosure, um, having a major health crisis that you didn't anticipate. And when we look at the horizon, um, you see data that shows that there's a significant portion of the population in the state of Michigan who really are one paycheck away from homelessness, um, that they don't have that cushion. Um, and, and I think cushions have been reduced uh, over the last several years because of the economy. And so it puts stress on people's budgets and, and really puts them at risk. And, and some people are on the brink of homelessness uh, much more frequently, I think, than uh, the public really understands. Mm-hmm. And uh, in regards to the Michigan Coalition Against Homelessness, what else, you know, do you suggest that residents can do besides, you know, the monetary value and contributing in that sense? Are there other means of trying to help the situation and be proactive as this, it sounds like, could worsen? Well, financial uh, contributions are really mm-hmm. a key, particularly in, in the stressful time that we're seeing financially, that agencies really need the additional help as we move forward into this winter season. Uh, beyond that, though, if people want to volunteer with organizations, I would suggest that they reach out to an organization uh, and explore those opportunities. Part of that, um, when we think about volunteering, is not just being there to uh, uh, help dish dish out food in, in the food line. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking about people who are, are willing to educate themselves about the issue and potentially be spokespeople for the issue, to be able to talk with other people uh, about the issue to educate the general public. But also, I think it's important for us as individuals to communicate with uh, policymakers. Uh, and legislators need to understand what the issues are, and they listen to people in their district. And so I think we have a responsibility as individuals uh, and as citizens to educate ourselves about the issue of homelessness and to be able to engage in some level of dialogue with our elected officials to let them know this is something that we feel um, has a a negative impact on many lives uh, and and on our communities in general, and it's something that should be on their radar screen. So I think we need to be vocal about it um, to educate because the best public policy is going to be based on good information, and we need to bring that information to the people who can make a difference. In the week, uh, the Homeless Awareness Week has been going on for about 20 years now, or almost 20 years. Do you feel, I mean, you've been in the position for two and a half years, but perhaps looking back at history, do you feel like the um, week itself, as well as the issue, has gained more attention over those 20 years? Well, I think it has. I think that the public also has a better understanding of what it is, not at the level that they need to. But I think people are a little bit more uh, aware of what the reasons are for it. I think that's because you chip away by providing information to people, and at some point um, it it, it gets some traction and people Mm -hmm. can understand it. Um, But homelessness itself, again, um, has been misrepresented in the media quite often. And I think uh, particularly with the different uh, uh, mediums that we have now, people can access information uh, more quickly and, and get more accurate information, have a better understanding of what the issue is. Uh, but one of the things I think that's important is that we're seeing some positive things happen with respect to homelessness as far as the number of successes. Uh, homelessness has actually gone down in this state a little bit after peaking uh, back in 2010. 
uh, we're also seeing a significant increase in the number of people who are being positively um, affected through the services that are out there, mm-hmm. meaning more people are successfully housed than they have been uh, before on a year-to-year basis because of new strategies that have been utilized. So we're seeing good things happen, but we need to be cautious and make sure that we still are vigilant and, and uh, trying to address the issue with more resources to make sure that those people who are moving towards the edge of homelessness are going to be spared that. Mm-hmm. And uh, looking across the country, how does Michigan uh, as a state compare to other states dealing with the same issue? Well, our state um, actually is doing better than a number of other states, Mm -hmm. uh, doing worse than some states, um, which is not surprising. We really started earlier uh, with respect to the impact of of the recession. Um, Because of the auto industry and our our close ties to the auto industry, I I would say that we were a couple of years ahead ahead of the, the rest of the country. Uh, as far as the impact of, uh, of the recession. So we had a, a bigger hole to dig out of. Um, but there are a number of states that have much higher numbers. And, and really we're talking about those states where it's more conducive, I guess, uh, as far as the elements go. And, and uh, um, you know, California, Texas, mm-hmm. uh, Florida, et cetera. But all in all, I think if you compare us to other states, we're moving in the right direction more quickly than, than other states are. We have some things that may be cutting edge uh, compared to some other states. Um, a lot of work still to be done, but I think that, that we as a state can be proud of the efforts that have been put uh, forth uh, through the campaign to end homelessness and, and other activities um, you know, through collective effort in the state of Michigan. That is exciting, and I think uh, very uh, looking into this next week, uh, you know, we close out Homeless Awareness Week, but we welcome in Thanksgiving week. So just in your professional or just personal opinion, what do you hope that people, as we begin this week of reflection and uh, gratitude, think about in regards to homelessness? Well, I think you're absolutely right in the reference about, um, you know, thinking in terms of what we have mm-hmm. and appreciating what we have, uh, but also having that that. Uh, uh, reflection about what our circumstances are and the reality that we, I don't care what your financial circumstances are today, we are all at risk of becoming homeless uh, because of some major life event that can happen. So we need to be thinking about how uh, lucky we are, uh, be thinking about how others uh, may need assistance and, and how we can elevate that as a priority in what we do as individuals and also as how uh, you know how we interact with our, our friends and neighbors, et cetera, and communicate to them, and particularly with legislators. We need to make sure we appreciate what we have, but also take action to help others. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we appreciate your insight on this issue, and we look forward to watching, hopefully, this progress in a positive manner um, as we, again, reflect this week and continue to throughout the year and the new year. So, uh, again, thank you very much, Eric Hoffnagel, the Executive Director of the Michigan Coalition Against Homelessness. Well, thanks for your interest in the yes. subject, Abby. Happy to be on. Mm-hmm. And with that, we end our show this evening. Special thanks to our producer, Gabriela Saldivia, our station manager, Sam Riddle, and our general manager, Ed Glazer. Now, I hope you have a wonderful and blessed Thanksgiving. From all of us here at Impact, safe travels and happy holidays. This evening has been Been hoping that you'd drop in So very nice
Fireplace now roar. really I'd better skirt. Sweetheart, watch your hurry. Well, maybe just a half Why a drink Why don't you more. put some records on while I play? The neighbors might think the baby is bad out there. Say, what's in this dream? No cabs to be had out there. I wish I knew how. Your eyes are like starlight to now. To break this bed. I'll take your Has been so lucky that you dropped so in. nice and warm. Look out that window at that stone. My sister will be suspicious. Gosh, your lips look delicious. And my brother will be there at the door. Waves upon a tropical shore. My maiden aunt's mind is vicious. Ooh, baby, you're so delicious. Maybe just one little kiss more. Never such a Oh, I've gotta go home. You'll freeze to the bone out there. Hey, lend me your call. It's up to your knees out there. You've really been great. I thrill when you touch But my hand. Don't you see? How can you do this thing to There's me? There's bound to be talk tomorrow. Making my life long. At sorrow. least there will be plenty in If you caught pneumonia and I, I really can't stay Get over that old out Baby, it's cold outside It's kind of chilly Just stay right here, baby You ain't gotta be nowhere 